you have your Bibles, please open to Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, Philippians chapter 1, as we continue our sermon series entitled, um, To Live is Christ, out of the book of Philippians. Now, um, as you're turning in your Bible there, I want to give you some of the context. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 11 this morning from chapter 1. And last week, we looked at Paul's opening salutation. Just as a reminder, he told them last week to remember their posture towards Christ, that they were slaves of Christ, they were servants of Jesus. But not only that, they were to remember their position in Christ, that they were in Christ as saints, that through what Jesus has done, they had been brought out of death into life, out of the kingdom of darkness, into, God, into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, and they were now saints in Christ. Now today, as we look at verses 3 through 11, which is the beginning of the body of the, the letter to the church at, at Philippi, you're going to notice that Paul has this overwhelming sense of gratitude and joy for his brothers and sisters at Philippi. He is so overwhelmed by his thoughts of them and his love for them that, it's, that he's going to overflow in praise to God for them thanksgiving to God for them, and prayer for their continued growth. Now, we have to remember that as Paul is writing this, he is in prison. We have to get the picture in our mind that he's surrounded by Roman soldiers, as uncomfortable as that would be, chained hands and foot, hand and feet, and in the midst of this, Paul is overjoyed, even in prison, as he thinks about the, his brothers and sisters in Philippi. Now, so what I want to do is I want to read this, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive in together. So this is what he says there. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all. Notice, again, just on a side, we could translate this into Southern. He keeps saying, y'all, you all. How I yearn for y'all with all the affection of Christ Jesus. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of of God. Father, we ask that you would now speak to our hearts as we open your word. Father, we ask that our hearts are ready, willing, and able to not only hear, but to listen attentively. Father, we ask that just as you caused Lydia in Philippi to listen to Paul's words, that you would cause our hearts and minds to be ready to receive the pure, implanted word of the gospel that we might grow. And so, Father, we ask that you would draw near to your people. We desperately need you. We ask this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Now, as we've just read through Paul's opening, um, opening of the letter here, you should have picked up that basically Paul moves through three phases. Okay, Paul moves through three basic phases. He said the first phase is he is thankful to God for the Philippians. Second phase is he then rejoices over them in their partnership for the gospel. And then finally, he prays for their spiritual growth. So that's kind of the, 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 that's the structure of verses 3 through 11. He is, he is absolutely grateful to God for who they are. He rejoices over them, and then he prays for them. Now, that is the, that is the structure, but... For our purposes this morning, we're going to work from the center of the text out. We're going to look at verse 6, and then we're going to work out from there. And this is why. Verse 6 is the root, it is the ground and the foundation for all of Paul's thanksgiving, for all of Paul's rejoicing, and for, all, and for, and for Paul's prayer. Without verse 6, everything else in this text can just be summarized as wishful thinking or empty rhetoric. It's all grounded on verse 6. Verse 6 is the assurance that all of Paul's hope for the Philippians will come true. And that's the same for us this morning. So the title of my sermon this morning is Assurance of God's Good Work. How can we have assurance of God's good work that will lead us to thanksgiving for God's good work, rejoicing in God's continued work, and a prayer of growth as God works in us towards a certain end a certain day when we will stand before Jesus. Okay, so first, I want you to, we're going to look at verse 6 in depth and work out from there. So first thing I want you to see this morning is that God is the cause of the good work in our salvation. God is the cause of the good work in our salvation. Look at verse 6. He says, he who began the good work in you. Paul immediately draws their attention to God who began the work in the Philippian church some 10 to 13 years earlier as Paul goes into Macedonia preaching the gospel, meeting Lydia, converting the Philippian jailer, and scores of people coming to Christ. God is the beginning of this work. Now we know that Paul here is referencing God the Father. He had just did that back in verse 2, right? If you look at the end of verse 2, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and then he says, I thank my God. He's referring to God the Father who is at work and who began the good work there in Philippi. Now, from Paul's point, it is the Father is the one who is at work in them. Now, again, I want to call your attention to Lydia. Think of Lydia here back from Acts chapter 16 that we looked at two weeks ago, right? Recall in Acts chapter 16 that Luke doesn't call attention to Lydia's faith being the originator of the work. Luke doesn't say in Acts 16 that Lydia heard the message and it was all up to her and that it was her faith that did all of the work. No. If you go back, this is what it says in Acts 16, 14. It says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. It says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So who was at work in Lydia's life bringing her to this moment? It was God the Father according to his good purposes. He was preparing Lydia for this moment when the gospel would intersect her life and she would be forever changed. Now the only assurance, the only assurance we can experience is resting on that primary 
thought, any assurance we would have or any assurance we would experience in this life has to rest on this primary thought that God is the cause of the good work in our salvation. That is the only place that we can have assurance. Had God not willed, think about it, had God not willed to reach down and save his people, had he not out of his great love sent his son Jesus, had he not opened our hearts and minds to hear, understand, accept, and receive the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, we would be hopeless and lost. You should just think about that for a second. The only assurance we can ever have is that God is the cause of the good work in us. Listen, our hearts, our minds, and our wills are fickle. They are changeable, and they run wildly to and fro from desire to desire. There is not a chance. There is not a chance in all of eternity that we would be able to save ourselves or that we would be able to keep ourselves saved apart from God's sovereign work. There is no chance. The only assurance we have of salvation is that God is the author and the originator and the actor in our salvation. What does Hebrews say? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. God is that. Now, knowing that God is the one primarily at work in the Philippians is what produces all of the gratitude that Paul has in verses 3 through 5. Paul's gratitude isn't in their, in their rigid, I can get it done, I can pull myself up by my bootstraps, and I can keep myself in Jesus, and I can work all this up by my own effort. No, Paul is grateful. Paul's gratitude is grounded in the truth that it is God who was at work in Philippi. If you remember, all of Paul's ministry there started by what? God's sovereign vision of calling them to Macedonia. He says, you can't go to Asia. You can't go to Bithynia. No, someone in Macedonia says, come, help us here. And Paul says, the whole, we, can, we, were, we were convinced that it was God calling us to Philippi because he was at work there. So first, if we're going to have assurance of God's good work, then we have to recognize that it is God who is at the cause of it. God is the root of it, the author of it, the perfecter of it. Second truth. Not only that, second, notice that Paul says that God will continue that good work. We can only have assurance, not only did God begin it, but God will continue it. Look what he says. He says, I am, I am sure of this, verse 6, he says, he says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, that's the good work of them coming to Christ, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ will bring it to completion, or some translations say, he will carry it on. God not only started it, he will carry it on. The emphasis here is on the continual work, the ongoing work of God for his people. God is continually at work. He not only begins the work of salvation, he is committed to carrying it on to his intended goal. Now, I just want to point out here that the entire Old Testament, y'all know how much I love the Old Testament. I want you to read it, study it, know it, connect the dots. All of the Old Testament is a running commentary of God's continued grace and mercy for his people. 
Isn't that it? All over, there is instance after instance where it seems that God will abandon His work with His people, where they deserve all of God's judgment. They don't deserve His grace or His mercy or His ongoing covenant, His love, any of that. But over and over again, what do we see in the Old Testament? God said, I will not forsake my covenant. For the sake of the covenant I made with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, with David, I will honor my word. I will continue my work with you. You will not be abandoned, though you will sit under my discipline, and I will conform you and work holiness in you and bring you to repentance. I will not stop until you reach the goal. Listen, God's covenant guarantees it. God never gives up on his people. Hear me this morning. If God began a good work in you, He has promised and He has committed to it with all of heaven and earth that He will continue it in your life. He will not abandon you or let you go. That is, what, that is not what our God does. He will be our God. We will be His people. His work of refining and rebuking, as I said, and working repentance will keep going. Yes, we will stumble. We will struggle. We will fall. We will fail. But God keeps His promises. Now I just want to say this is the place where God's sovereignty intersects our everyday life and circumstances. Every day, each day you face in this life, each day, each season, each mountain, each valley, each season of bountiful harvest and joy, each season of devastating drought and heartache, all work according to God's sovereign plans, to shape us and mold us into the image of Jesus. Now, I think here of my favorite, one of my favorite little nursery rhymes, God is still working on me. God is still working on me. You know, it took him so long to make the earth, moon, stars up above, all that stuff. But God's still working on me. The, song, the lyrics of the song just went right in my head. I was going to sing it for you. But the point, he's still working on me. That's the point. God promises to continue his work on his people for those that are in Jesus. Listen, we know that God's grace towards his people will not be in vain. That's what Paul writes over in Thessalonians. God will not leave or abandon his children. And hear this, he will not lose any of them either. For those that are in Jesus who repented of their sins and received this good work that God originated, God will see that it continues on. Hear what Jesus says in John chapter 10. This is why we can have assurance. Not because we can do all these things and figure it out. It's because God has covenanted to make sure this happens, that we reach the goal. Look at John. This is what John chapter 10 says. Jesus says this. I mean, it says this um, there in John 10. It says, So the Jews gathered around Jesus and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. And he says, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. And then he says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And he says, I give them eternal life. Who gives them eternal life? Jesus does. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me 
The Father began the work. The Father gave them to Jesus. The Father gave the Philippians to Jesus. My Father has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That is why we can have assurance that not only did God call, is the, God is not only the root cause of the work, God is the one who has promised to and is committed to continuing that work in his people. There are no orphans of God. Some of you need to hear that this morning. There are no orphans of God. God keeps his people because you, if it was up to you to keep yourself, all of us would be lost. We have not that ability. And then finally, I want you to notice the last promise is that God will complete that good work. Not only is God the cause, God will continue it and God will complete it. Look what it says at the end of verse C. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion. Where? When? At the day of Jesus Christ. God has committed all of who he is to bringing about the completion of this good work to a precise day, to a precise moment already written into eternity, already written on his calendar. It is the day of Christ Jesus. Over and over again, Paul points to the day that we stand before him, not as a day for us to be afraid or to, be, or to fear, but as a day of great assurance that God is able to bring you to that day holy and blameless and ready to receive the inheritance. Paul says this is why God has poured out his spirit into your hearts, who is the pledge, the guarantee of our inheritance until we receive it, that God has actually given you the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, a down, a, a down payment, a deposit on your salvation. God is basically saying, I would have to give up my spirit if I did not keep this promise. You will reach the intended goal. It is the day of Christ Jesus. One commentator says this about the assurance we have. I'll just quote it here. He says this, quote, The day will come and everything and everyone will be ready in time for it. That's what God is doing. He's getting us ready for that day. And he goes on to say, there will be no last minute rush, no botching up. Nothing will do for now. Strikes will not delay it, nor carelessness mar it. The Father has weighed up the merits of His Son and the proper response to His work at Calvary. And nothing will suffice but that He should bring His Son out from the invisible glories of heaven and show Him publicly to a wondering and worshiping world for His own glory. The Father must one day see every knee bowed to Jesus and hear every tongue acknowledge His Lordship. And our salvation, hear me, our salvation, this is what he says, our salvation is assured as the coming of that day. If God has committed Himself to displaying Jesus publicly and gloriously as the Son and Savior of the world, if that day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, then you can be sure that you will reach that day according to God's purposes, ready. Ready. Not because of you, but because it is God who has set all of heaven and earth for that purpose. The Father has obligated Himself to the Son 
to see the Son glorified and displayed as supreme over all the cosmos. And the Father can no more abandon His work in us than He can abandon His promise to Jesus. That is the ground of our assurance that the Father has made the promise, not us. This is why we, along with Paul, can have the supreme assurance of God's salvation. Look at how Paul begins this verse. I've waited all of this, all of this time to this one moment. How does Paul begin verse 6? I am sure of this. The reason we can say we are sure is because the Father has committed Himself to see this happen because of Jesus. That is why. I am sure of this because it is God the Father who has made the promise not only to us, He made it to Jesus. And He will keep His word. Now, as I try to close this up, man, am I, am I going? Oh, I got time. Y'all, here we go. So as I try, I want to transition here. This is, like I said, this is, the whole point of verses 3 through 11 is that this is the ground of our hope. Our only assurance is that it is God who is the root, it is God who will continue it, and it is God who will bring it to its intended completion, to its appropriate consummation. Now, I want you to look finally, we're going to just look at some evidences of God's work. What are the evidence? There are three great reasons that the Philippians can have confidence and assurance of God's work in their midst. But Paul here is going to give some tangible evidence of God's work in their lives. So there's some tangible things they can look at. Now, they, they know that God has promised to do this, but now Paul is going to say, let me give you some real evidences that you can look at in your church that demonstrate that God is at work. There's some real proof that God who began the good work will continue it. Here are several of those evidences, and I just want to note them briefly, okay? And I want you to notice that all of these evidences are tied to the Philippians' experience of the gospel. Here's the first evidence. Paul says that they are partakers of the gospel. They are partners, sorry, in the gospel. Paul says they are partners in the gospel. Do you see that there? He says, always in every prayer of mine, verse 4, for you all, making my prayer with joy. Why do I pray for you? Because of your partnership in the gospel. That is an evidence of God's good work in you. So, so this means partnership, that they are co-owners or co-laborers in the gospel. This means they have a shared confession of faith. That they have, um, they have a shared confession of the gospel that Jesus is Lord and they've publicly believed in his name. It also means they're committed to Jesus' mission. They're committed to getting the gospel to where it needs to go. They share fellowship in Christ together. Now we know that the gospel that Paul preached in Philippi was, in, was there in, in Acts chapter 16 when he confronts the Philippian jailer and the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And what does he answer? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. All the Philippians share that confession that Jesus is our Lord, and we've received salvation by faith in His name. And out of that, we are committed to making the gospel known. So they are partners in the gospel. That's an evidence of knowing that God began the good work in you, that you were a co-owner, co-laborer. You have a co-confession of the gospel. And you hold tightly to Jesus. The second evidence is this. Paul confirms their perseverance in the gospel. 
What does he say? He says, your partnership in the gospel from the first day, 10 to 12 years ago when he walked into town, from 10 to 12 years ago until today, they have stuck with Jesus from the first day until now. They haven't been fickle in their commitment or fearful of cultural pressure, and nor have they fallen away due to persecution. They have stayed the course with Jesus. That is an evidence of God's good work. God keeping you and sustaining you through difficulty and hardship and sickness and in health, that is a tangible evidence of God who began the good work in you that you cling to Jesus. The point is, if you walk away from Jesus, what does uh, 1 John say? They went out from us because they were not of us. Because had they really been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out from us to demonstrate that they were never really of us. So the point is, if you walk away from Jesus, it's not that you lost something you had. No, it's that you never had eternal life to begin with. You stick and cling to Jesus. Though all else leave, all else forsake, I hold on to Jesus. Why? Because he has held, taken hold of me first. So that's the second evidence, perseverance in the gospel. And third, Paul says that they are partakers of grace with him. They are partakers of of grace with him look there verse 7 he says it is right for me to feel this way about you all because i hold you in my heart for you are partakers with me of grace you have partaken of the gospel with me the grace of the gospel is evident because they are willing to identify themselves with paul even in his imprisonment they're not ashamed of him and his imprisonment for the gospel. No, they identify with him. They say, we are with you, Paul. We are sending help to you. We are taking care of your needs. If we have to go to prison, that's okay too because we are partakers of grace. Not only that, Paul says that they also defend the gospel before others. They're willing to confirm its truthfulness. You see that? He says that you are partakers with me in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. That's how I know you've partaken of grace. You defend the gospel when it comes under attack and you live in such a way that you confirm its truthfulness. That when people say, is the gospel true? You say, look at me. Look at my life. Look at what Jesus has done. So they are um, so this is why Paul is overwhelmed with joy and gratitude when he thinks of the Philippians. They are partakers of grace. They are persevering with him. They, he, so he prays for them. He thanks God for them and he loves them. Now here's what I want to say as I wrap this up. These evidences should be seen in our church today. 2,000 years later, these same evidences of God's good work in us that began by God, is being continued by God, and will carry on until the day of completion should be evidenced in our church today. Would Paul have the same thing to say about us? Are we partners in the gospel together? Do we have the same confession of Jesus, that Jesus is Lord, and we've received salvation by faith in His name? Do we share that together? Are we, making, are we seeking to make the gospel known here and everywhere for the glory of Jesus? Are you persevering in the gospel? Are you sticking to Jesus no matter the difficulty? Or when things get hard and the culture squeezes you a little bit, you go, Jesus isn't worth it. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. 
then God has not began the good work in you yet. Because one of the part of that good work is clinging to Jesus. Are we persevering in the gospel? Are we continuing to partake of the grace of the gospel day by day? Like I said, the gospel isn't this one-time thing in our life. This is day by day drinking in the mercy of God. That day by day I still need Jesus. I still need the gospel. Out of Paul's full assurance and confidence in God's continued work, And the Philippians' evidence of partaking of the gospel, the partnership of the gospel, perseverance in the gospel, out of that Paul overwhelmingly has affections flowing out of him for them. Now I want you to look at verses 10 through 11. Because out of this overflow of affection and assurance of God, Paul prays that they would continue to grow in their experience of the gospel. Notice Paul's prayer. Notice Paul's prayer right here in verses 10 through 11 as I wrap up. He says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless. There it is again for the day of Christ, that day that's coming. God is doing something to prepare you for that day filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. To the glory and praise of God. So here's here's what I want to say. What does God's continued work look like in our lives? How can we know that God is continuing his good work? These are just questions I'm asking. How can we know that that those promises are here with us today as well? Here's the answer. Paul prays that we would have abounding love for one another. That's an evidence of God's continued work. Abounding love for one another. And that love is directed and controlled by increasing knowledge and discernment of God's word and will. And that knowledge and discernment leads us to approve what is excellent. As we grow in love for Jesus and love for one another, and as God constrains and controls that love, pointing us towards what is excellent and praiseworthy, out of that... Out of that, we grow in holiness so that we are blameless and living for the day we stand before Jesus unashamed. This is why the grace we receive is transformative grace. It's not a grace that allows you to keep doing the things you want to do and keep living in the flesh and pleasing the flesh and living for your own desires. Sure, we fail and we have ups and downs, but this grace transforms our minds, hearts, and desires such that we are being formed into the image of Christ so that we are living holy and blameless before Him. Not out of our own efforts, but out of the grace that God is supplying day by day. That's the problem with moralism. Moralism cuts out the, 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 the actual power to do what needs to be done. Only the gospel provides what it requires. So just beefing yourself up and trying harder isn't going to get you there. It's understanding this is God's gracious work in me and it is God supplying the power day by day as I walk with Him that allows me to grow in holiness towards that day. And what's the end result? The end result is that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. That we would bear fruit for the glory and praise of Jesus. That's how Paul prays. That's how Paul prays for people that he loves. My question is, do you pray this way for people? Paul isn't just praying for people that are hurting and sick. Listen, that's okay. God tells us to do that. 
God tells us to pray for one another as brothers and sisters that we grow in our knowledge and understanding of the gospel so that we can bear fruit that brings glory to God. The fruit that brings glory to God. Is that how you pray for your children? Is that how you pray for your grandchildren? Is that how you pray for your neighbors, that they would be ready to stand before Jesus, filled with the fruits of righteousness, that only can happen because of God's work in their lives? Only God can do that. What does Jesus say in John 15? Jesus says, Jesus says it, is, it, is the, it is the Father's will that you abide in me and you produce fruit. What does Jesus then say? Apart from me, you can what? Do nothing. You will have no fruit of your own. It only comes through what Jesus does and, wrought, and wrought, is wrought in our hearts by his spirit. So, my question is, as we close, I want to pray and then um, I'll give us, some, and give us some instructions. But my question is this morning, if you, if you don't know Jesus, then the good work has not begun in your life. Maybe God has brought you to this moment right here and God is at work in your heart and you know he's speaking to you. And he is right now calling you saying, Come to Jesus. Come in repentance and faith. I have brought you to this moment for this purpose. If you're a believer, maybe you need to be reminded that your assurance, your only assurance is that God is the one that is continuing to work in you. And he will bring it to the day of Christ Jesus. The only reason I know I will stand before Jesus, holy, blameless, and pure, is because God is committed to it. And he has made the promise. May we rest in that promise together. Father, I pray you would bless the preaching of your word. Father, help us to dig in deep. Lord, to apply the salve of the gospel to our wounds. And Father, may we grow, grow in abounding love, approving what is excellent so that we may be holy and blameless at the day we stand before you. May we live every day in light of the day we stand before Jesus. Father, produce in us the fruits of righteousness as we abide in you by faith, walking with you daily, expecting you to work and move in our midst. We pray this in Jesus' name.